the thing I've discovered about Psalms is they're a bit like people. They come in all shapes and sizes. You know, some of them are celebratory and, and some of them are serious. Some of them look at the past and some of them paint a picture, uh, a prophetic picture of what is to come. And so I'm just trying to teach from the Psalms that have personally and directly ministered to me. And Psalm 51 is a Psalm unlike any other. Now, I want to read starting in verse number 7, and I'll read down to verse number 12. I think this is really the heart of what David is saying here. Psalm 51, let's start in verse 7. He wrote, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. And he said, create in me a clean heart, O God, or renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And he said, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Let's pray. Father, today, we just thank you for the gracious greatness of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Father, for hearts and minds open to receive the word of the Lord. We're praying today that we could have a perspective of who you are working in our lives, that you work it out 30, 60, and 100-fold. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. You know, uh, having grandparents like I do is a lot like having children because they serve as sermon illustrations. And uh, on Friday, my grandma in the back row over there celebrated her 97th birthday which I was proud of. Well, 97. And, you know, she told me, she said, uh, I'm getting old. And I was like, you, you think? I, mean, <laughs> I asked her, you know, if she could remember certain times when she was alive. I said, do you remember where you were when Pearl Harbor got attacked? She said, yeah. She said, we got a phone call. They told me the Japs had just hit Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Probably you can remember right where you were when 9-11 happened, right? I know where I was. Well, Psalm 51 is a bit like that for me because I can remember exactly where I was when Psalm 51 became real to me. I was sitting in the Phoenix airport and I just remember sitting there, you know, waiting on a flight and I was thanking God for his goodness in my life. And, and every time I read this Psalm, I'm taken back in time to that moment. So this is such an interesting Psalm. And what I want to highlight for you is what we could call the process of repentance it's a process of penitence. And this is one of David's, he wrote seven penitent psalms. I didn't even know that. Seven times in the psalms, he wrote about times when he needed for God's forgiveness or his mercy in his life. Uh, repentance is more than remorse. It's more than regret. I can think about Judas, who it says was remorseful, and went and mined. And last week we were talking about you know, America and God's mercy in America. And we need the mercy of God. But I'll tell you what America really needs is for repentance to take place on a whole scale level. Because we're headed in a direction that I get concerned about. And it could be that you find yourself headed in a direction in life where repentance needs to take place. Now let's walk through this process that David highlights here. I'm starting back up here in verse number one. When he wrote, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness and, and, and the multitude of your tender mercies and blot out my transgressions. You know, David is asking for mercy because he's being confronted by a man named Nathan the prophet. The first part of this process of penitence, 
would have to do with a confrontation. That's what's discovered in the title. That's the opening section of this passage of Scripture. If you look back up in that preamble, in the title there, it's, it's given you a little context when Nathan the prophet confronted him over his sin with Bathsheba. It's a famous passage of Scripture in the Bible. Uh, you know, 116 of the 150 Psalms have titles. They're not considered to be inspired, but they do provide for us context. And when studying the Bible, context is so crucial to really understanding what God is trying to convey in the passage. And, and so here's David, and he's in this confrontive, complementative moment where he's discerning a rebuke, not just from Nathan, but from the Lord himself. You know, the thing about confrontation is when you get confronted by sin, that's a place where you could offer up, like David, a plea for mercy. I said last week, how grateful am I for the mercy of God? I mean, his mercy endures forever. It's everlasting. It's a wonderful thing in our lives, and, and we've talked about it, and I'm grateful for his mercy. But I've also discovered about confrontation is that it's a painful thing, but it's also a very fruitful thing. In fact, relationships grow, relationships get developed when confrontation takes place. And if you've ever been close with people, been married, been in a family situation, you know that confrontation is inevitable. It is something that happens in life. I have found as a leader of a family, as a leader of a church, that you'll never rise above your ability to confront something. And here, God is confronting something that took place in David's life. So while it's painful, it's fruitful. I also think confrontation might just be a prerequisite for you to really know God. It might be the beginning part of the relationship that takes place with God. Think about how John the Baptist and Jesus both began their ministries. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there's something about an encounter or an experience with God, even a correction when he says something in your life that will set you on a separate course from where you were headed. That, that's the power of confrontation. That's what takes place when, when you're in this initial process of penitence, repentance, where God starts working something in you because his mercy needs to correct something in your life. Now, let's take a look at a second thought right here. Look at verse number two. David said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For he said, I acknowledge. Everybody say, I acknowledge. Acknowledge, he said, I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Now, here's the second phase of our process. This would have to take place after a confrontation. And it's what we would call the confession stage. David is confessing his sin. He said, I acknowledge it. I, I, I'm, I'm taking ownership and responsibility, there's an acknowledgement of guilt on my behalf. And if you study great men of the Bible, some of its great characters were men who, like Moses, understood their own wretchedness. I mean, I can think about David here. We could think about Peter when he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Think about Paul the apostle who declared himself the chief of all sinners. I mean, there was a realization that, that there were some flawed issues and things that took place in their lives. Now, the thing about confrontation is that it comes pretty easy because we could say there's a number of 
issues in your life, we call them issues, for which you might be guilty of. And some of those issues, those sin issues you might face, might be pretty evident and pretty glaring. Like the fact that you've got a big mouth. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> you know, you're prone to say things, or, or, or maybe you're one of those people who use your mouth to always complain about the problems you're faced with. Other people get bored and tired of your constant drip, drip, drip of negativity. It, it could be, you know, that there's sin issues that are evident, like maybe addiction problems. That it's, it's, it's pretty easy to tell, or you're lying about things. People tend to spot those things. On the other hand, there's some sins that the Bible says are not so easy to identify. They're the things of the heart, like jealousy. Jealousy might be the sin that every one of us is guilty of, but ain't nobody going to admit it. <laughs> yeah, or maybe there's some money problems because you've been lying on your taxes and it ain't been discovered, or, you know, lust problems looking on the internet late at night and nobody sees about it, but, but God does see about those things. So confrontation's pretty easy to identify. It's going to happen in life. Confession, on the other hand, isn't always the easiest thing. It's not necessarily easy to admit fault, guilt, or wrong in something, especially if you are the self-righteous type because you get too caught up looking at the log in somebody else's eye rather than being concerned about the one in your own eye. But this is what I have discovered about confession. And I've told the story many times. I was just sharing it with some uh, people a few weeks ago. You know, I, I found that confession is one of the most freeing, liberating things that you can have when God starts dealing with you. Because I do remember the time when I was a rebellious teenager and mom and dad were, had the silly, crazy idea to leave me home alone. And when they went to California, and I threw the biggest party, and the best part was I got away with it. <laughs> I couldn't believe they hadn't caught me. And I harbored that inside, even after I rededicated my life and gave it back to the Lord. But one night, the Lord visited me, and he wanted me to confess what I had done. Oh, man. And I remember with fear and trepidation, I sat down with mom and dad and I worked up the courage to tell them the horrible, crazy things I did in their house. And you know, they were merciful and gracious, just happy that their son was back right with the Lord. But you know what I found when I did that? I found the most freeing thing. It was like a weight lifted off my chest. That's what sin is. It's like a weight that holds you down. And when there is unconfessed sin issues, when there's a problem in your heart and you, and, and you harbor it in, that is what will hold you back and slow you down. And I have found over and over again the power of, like David, acknowledging and confessing a sin that might be in your life, my life. I mean, how freeing is it when you can get it off your chest on the table? And, and man, that is a powerful part of this process, admitting the fact that I, I, I am in fact guilty of that. How freeing is it? Now let's take a look at number three here. And I'm in verse number four. And David said something powerful when, when he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. This is a rather insightful, uh, revolutionary verse. He said, because when, when you will be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And on a little side note, David added that I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's addressing one of the cardinal sins of the Bible, or uh, cardinal truths of the Bible, doctrines of the Bible, is that people are born inherently in sin. That's the reason we sin. But our sin is something that matters not with people, but with God. And I want to highlight a third part of this process, which I would call 
correction. And I had the Lord speak this to me this week. A correction really is this change that takes place in your thinking or your thought process when God begins to deal with you. And what's interesting about it is this is really where people miss it. Because they assume that their sin is against another person. But verse 4 says, David addressing God, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. That's a powerful thought. When when Nathan the prophet confronted David in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13, Nathan said, I have, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And, and he acknowledged that his sin was a reproach and an affront in the sight of God. Repentance becomes real. When you understand that sin is something that God takes personally, that it's something between you and him, that it's not against other people. There's no mention of Uriah that's made here, the man that David killed. There's no mention of Bathsheba. There's just this acknowledgement of a condition that's existing between God and between you. And I'll tell you, this is a lot of times where we get tripped up because sometimes we get our eyes so much on people we forget about God. But what David is saying is that my sin is an offense in the eyes of God. That's the way God looked at it. You know, it's interesting. I have been in a season of late in which the Lord has been dealing with me on little particular sin issues. And I, I find it interesting. Uh, about for three weeks in a row, God would speak to me very early in the morning on Sundays, just before I was preaching. And he speaks to me in dreams quite often, little things. And it's not necessarily words for people. It's a personal thing. And I, I really got rattled because he showed me that I was having a bad attitude because sometimes I feel like what I'm doing isn't significant. Like, you know, when you look at the landscape of churches and you see big old churches and I've been to places where leaders are tremendous men of God and they inspire you. And I started feeling like, man, maybe what I'm doing just really isn't all that insignificant. And God visited me and he corrected me. And it was very freeing. I mean, it was like, Oh man, his grace, his mercy in a moment like that. I have had him correct me on a number of little type sin issues in my heart. Little things that, that you know, they're, they're just attitudes or thoughts or things I'm allowing to fester. And, and what God is doing is he's correcting me. And he was saying, that is not something that's pleasing in my sight. That's something that's holding you back. And, and David, he had this big sin issue in front of the nation. But I found out, that if you let him deal with you on the little issues, you don't have to have him grow into big issues. I mean, if you've ever been called out or exposed for something, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you would have dealt with something, a sin issue, an attitude, if you would have corrected it when it was small, it may not have festered into what it was. And if you won't let God correct you or you won't heed his admonishment, what will happen is that your conscience get seared, and, and, and you might start rationalizing and justifying behavior and sin, and this is where it will continue in your life. So you've got to heed the voice of his correction. I like what Proverbs 1 and verse 23 says. It, it, it's the first time the Bible uses the phrase, the pouring out of the Spirit. And what God said is, if you turn at my rebuke, see if I won't pour my Spirit out upon you. When, when, you, just, when, when you just take little admonitions and accept them as God's correction in your life. Realize that something between you and God, your sin bothers him because he's a holy God. That, that's a place where you can really start 
growing in who he is and understanding his nature. So a third part of this process is the corrective phase where he's working something out. He's trying to change a thought. He's trying to adjust an attitude. It might be a secret little sin thing that you may not even be aware of, but God wants to correct it. I'm talking about really knowing God. He, he will highlight certain attitudes in your life. Now, number four here, and I love these verses, man. The famous immortal words of David. When he wrote in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, I want to make the point right here. And this would have to do with the cleansing part of this process. Cleansing. You know, a clean conscience in the sight of God is simply something that Clorox cannot do. Only the blood of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is able to fully cleanse a conscience. It won't get cleansed without the washing and renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You know, hyssop is like a plant. It's like a branch. And once a year, uh, the, on the Day of Atonement, he would dip it in blood and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And they call that the Day of Atonement because that's that one day of the year where, where God was going to cover over the sins of his people. And atonement is an English theological word that breaks into three parts, at one mint. And what it means is you're becoming at one with God. And that's what David is experiencing in this moment. He's, he's kind of coming back into fellowship with God. And, and when he talked about hyssop, when he talked about that, he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about the blood in, in his day of bulls and goats, in our day of the blood of Jesus. And he said, I will be whiter than snow. Man, that's such a powerful thought. You know, I was thinking about um, Elizabeth and I have been on some camping trips lately. I've been taking little kids camping. We're in this uh, season. <laughs> and the thing about, you know, camping, we're trying to figure out if we like to go on three-day trips or two-day trips. You know, because sometimes you kind of get in a rhythm. And the problem with three-day trips is by the third day, man, you start smelling like an onion. You got that <laughs> stinky, sweet aroma around you. And, and if you can't have campfires, she told me I like campfires because the smoke covers the onion smell. <laughs> but you know, your sin smells like an onion, doesn't it? I mean, it's a stench. People smell it. God, it's a stench in his nostrils. And I, I, how good does a shower feel in the natural when you come back from camping or you're out in the woods? And, you, and how good does a shower feel with, with the blood of Jesus cleansing a conscience? He, he said, I'll, if you wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. The cleansing part is, is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. And, and the, the whiter than snow, that's a supernatural thing. You know, snow is the whitest shade of white that there is. And Isaiah the prophet said that though our sins may be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. And there's nothing that can get scarlet out of dye. But it's a supernatural thing that God does in your life when he cleanses you. It's supernatural. Look, look, look at verse number 10. He said, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. You know, that, that creativity, it, that when God creates something, it's really a, a regenerated heart. It's where God does an internal transformation. When, when you have Jesus in your life and his blood cleanses you, it's like that heart, that heart. Man, he takes away the desire that you had for sin. 
Yeah, I was sitting at the Phoenix airport. This verse became real to me. Uh, this, of course, is the story of, of David having an affair uh, with Bathsheba. Now, for full disclosure, uh, I didn't have an affair when I was at the airport. and Nothing like that was before I met Elizabeth. God has taken away any kind of desire like that. Man, I would hate to uh, not have Elizabeth in my life. I have no desire to have an affair on Elizabeth, uh, mostly because I love her and she's beautiful, but also because dating at age 40 would not be fun. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I don't want to go through that whole thing again. <laughs> it says here, he said, Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, that, that renewal. David had experienced the presence of God in his life, but sin had separated from him. And that's what happened to Samson. Samson had the same issues. He sinned with women, and he didn't even know it when the spirit of God left his life. That may have been what happened to Solomon. Solomon had the same issue, all that power, but his wives, it says, turned his heart away from God. And sadly, I have seen this even happen in churches with preachers. You get so caught up with busyness, or maybe you've had great success and your ego is rolling, and I've seen time after time, it's like an epidemic in the days that we live in where people, preachers, get caught up in affairs. And a lot of it is that the Lord may have left your life and you don't even notice it. That's what David, he's realizing what happened. And he's crying out to God. And I love what he said here in verse number 11. So he prays. He said, create this clean heart in me. And he said, do not cast me away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of, my, of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, this fifth phase is what I would call the communion phase. And that word communion means uh, like fellowship. And David's having this renewed and restored sense of relationship back with God, his presence in his life. I, I like how 2 Corinthians 13 ends the book. He, he talked about the Trinity and he identified the love of God the grace of Jesus, and the communion, the fellowship, the Greek word is the word koinonia, the presence of God in your life. And I'm here to tell you that it's through the Holy Spirit that we have a relationship with God, that we can encounter Him on a daily, personal, powerful way. The Holy Spirit is what gives us access into God's presence, and the Holy Spirit is really who's pressing on your conscience to, to help you stay away from sin, to help you live righteously. It's the Spirit of God in your life. And there's nothing, as David was saying, more precious, more powerful, more significant in your life than the Holy Spirit working on your behalf, speaking with you, being with you. It, it, it's a powerful thing. It's, a pre it's, it's so significant in your life because it's the only thing that can really satisfy the longing of a human soul. Because you know money's not going to do it. If money could fill the holes in people's hearts, billionaires wouldn't be getting divorced, and people in Hollywood wouldn't be addicted to drugs. And listen, I've had moments where I've had money in the bank, moments where I didn't have money in the bank. I found out that there's never enough money to really ever make you happy. Like, like I, I'm just saying money ain't going to do it. Uh, you know what else won't do it is all your life experiences. Like millennials today are totally consumed with traveling and world experiences and seeing things. And I've been blessed to be in different nations of the world. But it did not satisfy 
the longing of my soul. It might have stroked the ego, might have been fun, but now it's a memory. You know what else I found is that even earthly relationships cannot satisfy the longing for the presence of God in your life. You're not going to get it in a marriage, as wonderful as marriages are, as happy as I am to be married. And, and children are wonderful, and they're, you know, they run around and play with you, and your friends are great, and extended family, and, Hollywood, or, uh, and holiday barbecues, and all the, but that does not satisfy the need you have for the Spirit of God to be in your life. That's what David is saying. He, he, I, I'm guilty of sin, but God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Man, do you remember where you were when you first got right with God? That might be a 9-11 experience for you. You know right where you were. I do remember, you know, being four or five years old in Sunday school, and some light came on in me. I had to get the Lord in my life. I remember I was trying to drag my three-year-old sister up there to the altar call. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just have that memory etched in my mind. Somehow I didn't fully comprehend it, but it was real. I remember May 16, 1998, when I fully rededicated my life to God and have never stopped walking with Him ever since. That date is forever etched in my mind. I go right back in that moment. He said, uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, I like reading from the King James translation here. And he uses the word generous, which is an interesting translation. If you're reading the New American Standard or, or other standard translations, they might say your willing spirit. But the cross-reference comes in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 and, and verse 17, in which it said, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And when he talked about a generous spirit, what he's talking about is the, the freedom we have in the Lord. He, he, freely, he has given all things for us richly to enjoy. That's what the Bible says. Freely, he has forgiven you. You will never meet anyone more gracious, more generous, more kind, more merciful, more loving than God. And that is why you need him so much in your life. Because it's the freeing nature of the Holy Spirit. When he visits you, when, when you get sin off your chest, it, it's like freedom is in your life. That's what David's crying out for. He knew he was guilty. But he's experiencing the freedom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, I like verse number 17 here. Here's the last part of our process. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. He said, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And he said, these, O oh God, you will not despise. Now, this is the last part of our process. And by the way, this is what I've discovered about God and people. He, he, he does take us through process. And people want power, but they don't want process. It's <laughs> one thing I've discovered. Here's God's end game, and it has to do with a contrite heart. A contrite heart and a broken spirit. That's right. Bruised, brushed, crushed, broken. That's what, he's, that's what happened to Isaiah the prophet. I, in chapter 6 of his book, he, he had an, an encounter with God. And he said, woe is me, for I'm undone, and, I, and I'm an unclean man, and I dwell among an unclean people. Uh, uh, see, here's the problem with getting... When you start getting close to God and drawn near to Him, He starts breaking you down. Not like in an abusive, dictatorial, military manner, but in a freeing, self-loathing kind of way. Because what happens is you start coming face to face with him and you realize your own sense of sin and wretchedness, your own sense of weakness and failure. 
That's what David's faced with. That's what Moses faced. This is what Jacob experienced in Genesis 32 when he was wrestling with a man all night. Here he was wrestling with this man and, and, and when he saw he could not prevail, it says that this man hit him on the hip and he came out of that place limping. I had someone ask me, what does it mean that he came out limping? And, and what I said is it just means that he had a reliance and a dependence upon God. And I, I've heard it said, you should never trust a man if he doesn't walk with a limp. And what that simply means is you ought to value brokenness in a person. Because, you know, sometimes you come across people, even well-meaning believers, but there's something so strong in their soul, you identify they have not fully surrendered and submitted themselves to the Lord. Right. And, you know, you come across people like that, hard, difficult, and it just means God hadn't had his perfect work in their life yet. But if you really want to know God, and if you really want to experience and encounter him, when he starts correcting certain things in your life, it'll take you to a place where your heart is broken before him. See, the thing about God is that he sees in secret. He's got x-ray vision, not for your body, but for your heart. And he can tell. He can see if you're just being religious. He can see beyond the you know, rituals and the sacrifices, and, and he can really get to the heart of the matter and identify if a heart is sincere or not. He, he's looking to see, is this a heart that is sincere? Ha, have, have you really surrendered yourself to the Lord? That's what he's saying. Hmm. You know, the fruit of submission, the fruit of someone who you know, has, has let God work in their heart, w- would have to be a person who has fully submitted themselves to the will of God. That's what a contrite heart will do. When you're broken before the Lord, you will do whatever he asks you to do. You will follow his will, his guidance, his leadership, when he corrects you about the way you handle money or the way you treat people. or, or he, you'll, you'll just say, Lord, I'm with you. Or the fruit of a contrite heart would be that you become a servant. Like you have no problem working in the kids' ministry. You, you, you can surrender yourself or you can utilize the gifts that God gave you to be a blessing to somebody else. Freely, you can just give them back to him because you're a servant. That's the highest place you can go in the kingdom is when you're broken enough to give God what belongs to him. The fruit of a contrite heart person, a broken person, is that they become trustworthy, that they're faithful in the things of God. When I think about that phrase, broken, you know, like a broken heart, a contrite heart, I think about horses because, you know, in Montana... We have horses. Some, some are good horses and some are bad horses. The good horses are called broken horses. The, the horse is broke. That means they're rideable. And, you know, growing up, we had a horse whose name was Charlie. And this horse was totally broke. You could put six-year-olds on him, five-year-olds on him, four-year-olds. And wherever the kids would just take the reins, that horse would go. It was fully submitted and surrendered to the rider. And that's what God's after. He's just after you and me to be in a place where we have fully submitted and surrendered our lives to him. That's what God is working out in David's life. And it started with a confrontation, which may have been painful, but it was necessary to get him back to the place where he needed to be with God. You know, I was sitting there at the Phoenix airport, experiencing God's mercy and his faithfulness. And what I could think about is how it drew me back to God. It gave me this hunger and this desire to really know him because he's so good. Isn't that right? He's good. If you've ever had him deal with you, you realize how good he is. Now, I want to highlight uh, one last verse here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you make your way over there. 
you know, one of the ways that you can experience the mercy of God in a way like David did is through the communion meal. And uh, we're going to have communion this morning. I want to invite our team up. But I want to highlight 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. Let's look at what it says here. He said, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord, speaking of the table of the Lord, communion table, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so he said, let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread, drink of the cup. You know, what's interesting about communion. The Bible doesn't tell you exactly how it's supposed to be taken. It doesn't say you ought to take it at the beginning of the service. It doesn't say to take it as I often have in the middle of the service. It doesn't say take communion after you've had a message as we're doing this morning. It kind of gives us its own interpretation about it. It just kind of says take communion. What it does teach though is that it should be taken in a solemn and sacred manner. That it's serious and it matters to God. It should not be taken flippantly or irreverently. And I know sometimes in the society we're in because that's sometimes the way people do it. We, we kind of, you know, just take it. And don't think much about it. But when he said that you should examine yourself, what he's saying right here is that communion should be taken with a clean conscience. That's what David meant when he said, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean and whiter than snow. A clean conscience. It means you ought to examine yourself and see if there's any sin that is hindering your relationship with God. That's just what we read in the scriptures. You know, Psalm 51 is a challenging one to preach from. Because, you know, there wasn't a lot of hooping and hollering and amens and messages like that. I mean, there, there's some secret things in your heart. There might be attitudes God's correcting. You might not even be aware of them. But maybe right now he's highlighting something. Maybe you're getting poked with a thought or an attitude. Yeah, I've had him deal with me like this. Uh, this communion meal, when we take it, it means that we should take it considering the sacrifice that Jesus made. A, a body that was broken. That's what his blood represents. That's what, his, that's what the bread represents. Or his blood that was shed for the remission of your sin. That's what the cup represents. The, the blood of Jesus. Think about all the Lord suffered. Th think about what he went through for you. Think about what he endured so you would have freedom. And when we partake of this meal, we should do it in appreciation, celebration, and gratitude with thanksgiving for what he's done. Man, I am thankful for a God who forgives. I'm thankful for a God who, if you're starting to veer off in a direction, loves you enough to confront and correct it. I'm thankful for a God whose mercy is new every morning and his presence can be in my life. Man, there's something good and wonderful and gracious about this Savior we call Jesus. Amen. And so as we partake this morning, will you stand up and you're going to have to ever so delicately get your COVID cups open. We don't want to have germs spread, so we have them in these cups, but let's just celebrate the Lord. Think, check your heart this morning as we partake. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all
face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many songs to of the Holy Spirit and I, I can't help but sense that maybe you, there's a course correction coming into your life you might be thinking about one right now that needs to take place but I, I also sense that God is going to change some courses for some people that's why these meals are so powerful and sacred because you can point back to a moment like this and realize God was involved and direct in the things he's doing let's partake of this meal with the bread representing his body. In Jesus' name. And now for the cup representing his blood shed for our remission of sin. Let's take that in Jesus' name. Father, we just thank you for your presence.
presence. Thank you that your blood is so powerful. It's through the blood of Jesus that we have this precious Holy Spirit in our lives. That precious Holy Spirit who knocks at our hearts, convicts our conscience. And I just thank you, Father. I, I thank you, Lord, that you got us on the right path, that you're moving us in a direction. And Lord, if there's someone here that a direction needs to turn, I thank you for turning courses and directions. Amen. I was thinking about confrontations. I said it was a prerequisite for a relationship with God. And one of my most intriguing passages of Scripture is Matthew 16. When Jesus asked Peter a question, I mean, Jesus was doing pretty well. His ministry was growing. And he said, Peter, who are people saying that I am? And Peter said, well, you know, Lord, some say you're a good teacher, or one of the prophets, John the Baptist, risen from the dead. I mean, they're enamored with you. But then Jesus asked Peter a follow-up question. And he said, that's great, Peter, but who do you say that I am? Which Jesus, Peter said, I believe that you're the Son of God. And every person in the room is going to be confronted with that question at some point in their life. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a moral man? Is he simply a good teacher, a great prophet? Or is he the son of God? That's a personal question for you to answer. And as we leave the room this morning, I hope you can answer that question properly. Because that's who he is to me. That's who he is to those of us who believe in him. If you've never acknowledged that or confessed that, you come down here and pray with me. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, we're sure glad that you came out to church this morning. I want you to know that we value you. We bless you. And man, we had a great time getting people out to church. We're having another event coming up here in August just for fellowship and wonderful time. We've got a great group of people here. And it's fun to worship God together with you. And if you need prayer for something, these altars are open. We love to pray for you, whatever situation you're in. Maybe you've got to confess something and get it off your chest. And I've got a great group of people who will pray with you. And God will touch you. Amen. All right, we love you very much. We'll catch you all next week. And I just want to leave you with the one thing. I really do sense in my spirit God's about to course correct some people. And if he does, take it seriously. Don't, don't blow him off. If, if he's going to move you, listen to it, all right? Amen. Be blessed.